Pastor Brian, everybody. How's it going? Okay, um, Brian, did you did you talk about the welcome card? I'll do that. Um, if you're new here, we're glad you're here. Welcome. It's good to have you guys, and I hope that you've met some some folks around you already. Um, but we do have a way for you to connect with me and Pastor Brian and other leaders in our church. Just that QR code that's right on the inside of the bulletin that takes you to our welcome card. Gives you a chance to let us know that you were here and even share prayer requests with us that we'd love to be praying um, with you about. And moms, we'd love that you are in here with babies. If by any chance you get to a spot where you want to take advantage of the cry rooms, know that they're right here and they're accessible by the outside hallways. Um, this one has a little bit more privacy than this one, um, but they are there for you to use if you'd like them. And finally, older kids that are in here for the sermon, we have the sermon notebooks on the back that you can use to take notes on the sermon today. And if you collect enough of those, then you get to choose from the treasure chest. That's the 2024 change. It's not the prize basket anymore. It's the treasure chest, all right? So that being said, um, I get the pleasure of telling you guys that we are back in 1 Kings today. After a break for Advent and some standalone sermons for New Year's, we are back in our sermon series on the life and times of the prophet Elijah. And today we pick off where we left off, 1 Kings chapter 20. We got a long passage today, but a good one, an interesting one. Now, a couple of just sort of caveats before I read this text for us. One, Elijah doesn't show up in this text at all, which might seem kind of weird because this is a sermon series on the life and times of Elijah. But this is the really honing in on the times part of the life of Elijah because what the text is doing is it's taking the spotlight off of him for a moment and shining it on what's going on around him. Like what the, the current events were in Israel, the, 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 the kingdoms and the wars and what's going on with King Ahab. That's what these next few chapters of the Bible will be showing us. It's giving us some context. One more thing that's kind of a caveat is that you're going to notice that I'm going to stop the reading just like right in the middle of the story. That's because this narrative is very long. We can't do it all in one sitting. So we're going to have to chop it up and do one this week and one next week. So, with that being said, let's jump right in. If you would, stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. Prepare, your, prepare yourself. Take a deep breath. We're going to be standing for a few minutes here as this is a long text. Here we go. Starting 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 1. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against him. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, 
Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen to him or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, all that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered him, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself of who he takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings and the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? The prophet answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And they went out at noon, while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the 32 kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the district went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, Men are coming out from Samaria. He said, If they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the district and the armies that followed them. And each struck down his man. The Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with 14. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself. Consider well what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth in these next few moments and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You guys can be seated. Good job, by the way. Good job. Nobody passed out, at least not that I could tell. So, I've got a story for y'all. has to do with uh, somewhat of a famous character over the years. Uh, someone that shows up in my sermon illustrations time and again. Uh, it's my high school girlfriend, Allison. In fact, I told a story about her uh, like eight years ago. I mean, a long time ago that people still come up to me and ask about. It's the one about uh, her taking a handgun on all of our dates. You don't know what I'm talking about. Come talk to me afterwards. It was a good one. So this one, though, um, is kind of actually more about her dad. Uh-oh. This was my placeholder for a passage I was going to read at the end. So, whoops. We'll, have to do, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. So... I went on uh, a date with Allison and a, a group of friends. We went to see a baseball game in my hometown. Uh, Augusta, Georgia has a minor league baseball team, the Augusta Green Jackets. And so we went to see this baseball game, 
And after it was over, we're coming out to the parking lot. It's dark, but we noticed that her, her RAV4 has this tire on the back end that's just completely blown out. Not a little flat, like totally flat. She doesn't have a spare tire. She doesn't have a jack in her car or anything. So she calls her dad. Her dad, Tim, he was a former police officer. He was a real, like, can-do kind of guy. So he's going to come help. In the meantime, though, I'm thinking of ways to impress him. So I decide that I'm going to secure the perimeter, lock down the scene. I start investigating the tire, and it's dark, but I'm able to discern that there's really, I don't see any punctures. I don't see any nails sticking out of it. There's definitely no signs of foul play. Because, you know, somebody could have slashed your tire if they were upset that you parked in the wrong way or whatnot. So her dad arrives, and he's a former police officer. He's got one of those huge mag light flashlights. And he's shining it at us as he's walking over towards the car. And I come up side to side with him, and I start, you know, helping him assess the situation, filling him in on what he needs to know. And as I'm giving him the rundown of how I hadn't discovered anything on the tire that would indicate why it is that it had gone flat, his mag light shines at the sidewall of the tire. First thing it lands upon is this six-inch gash that could have only been made by like a giant hunting knife just ripping through it. And that beam just sits on that gash. And I stop talking. And then the beam now shines in my face. You know, where you're like, silent. And then it shines back at that tire. I swear, it was, felt like a minute that we were just sitting there in silence. And he goes, son, are you drunk? <laughs> I said, no, sir, I'm just an idiot. <laughs> that was the beginning of the end for me and Allison, I believe. I'm sure her dad was like, you, you need to find somebody better than that guy. So, uh, no, not a, aw. I'm not saying that for pity. Come on. No, she's just fine. Well, I heard Tim Cook's voice in my head this week as I was preparing for this sermon because I'm, as I'm reading this narrative in 1 Kings 20, I keep wanting to take my mag light flashlight and shine it in the face of some of the characters here and say, are you drunk? What are you thinking? And I mean, one of the characters we know the answer is very literally yes, they were drunk. The Bible tells us that. But then there are a few other figures in this narrative that do things. They make decisions and they take actions that seem to only be explainable as if they were intoxicated. The, the first one is King Ahab. He's a guy that if you've been tracking with us in this sermon series on Elijah, you know that name because he's been the foil of the prophet Elijah for a while now. He's a guy that Elijah is constantly coming up against because King Ahab had abandoned the worship of the Lord in Israel. In fact, not only had he abandoned the worship of God, he had adopted a new religion of a false god, the god Baal. His wife Jezebel had brought with her this new religion with all the prophets, and she and Ahab have persecuted prophets of the Lord, and they've brought in the prophets of Baal. In fact, 
The Bible tells us, this is its assessment of King Ahab. The Bible says that of all the kings that had come before Ahab, he was the most wicked and evil of all of them by a lot. He was a terrible king. So we pick up in our narrative today with him sort of reaping what he's sown in that. He's a guy that had adopted these new gods thinking it would give him control and security, but instead he is now surrounded by this coalition of 32 rulers that are bearing down on his capital about to overtake it. And they actually send an emissary to him telling him how dire it is. The the messenger from the king of Syria says, Thus says Ben-Hadad, this is verse 3, Your silver and your gold are mine, your best wives and children also are mine. Now, we're not exactly sure what that's saying. And you're probably like, what do you mean, Josh? It's very obvious. But what I mean is this, that some commentators believe that that might have been sort of a um, fancy formula for becoming a vassal kingdom. So it could be that the king of Syria was saying, you're going to be, Israel is going to be a vassal state in my bigger empire and kingdom. You're going to give me tribute. You're going to pay me taxes. You're basically going to do what I tell you to do. That could be what he's saying with this sort of formula. Or it could be, literally, he's saying, I want your gold and silver and your wives and your children, maybe. Either way, here's the key thing. Ahab, the king of Israel, totally rolls over and says, sure. He says, okay. He's the king of Israel. He is the leader of God's chosen people. He's the leader of the people that God had brought out of slavery to Egypt. And now in this position where they're threatened, he's like, sure, fine, take it. We're yours. That is tragic. Now, if Ahab was thinking that that decision would get him out of danger, he's sorely mistaken. Because if you're paying attention to the text, you know what happened next. As soon as the king of Syria sort of smells that weakness, he goes for more. And now he sends the messenger back the next day and says, actually, here's what we're going to do instead. I'm going to go through your palace, and you're going to point out to me everything that you really like and you really love, and I'm going to take that from you. I don't know what the Syrians were doing here. Maybe they were just trying to pick a fight after all, or maybe they were just really trying to push their advantage at a desperate moment. But whatever they're doing, this is a bridge too far for Ahab, and he decides that he needs to hold off on this whole becoming a vassal thing so he sends to the elders of the land and it's almost like he wants sympathy from them he's like guys I told them that they could take the gold and silver and my wives and my children but they're still giving me trouble and it's at this point that the elders of Israel do the thing that brings us back to my opening story they shine the flashlight in his face and they say are you drunk here's their response to him When he says what he's done and what he says, what it is that might be happening, it says, all the elders and all the people said to him, this is verse 8, do not listen or consent. What are you thinking? They're saying, you're the king of Israel, the chosen people of God. You don't give away what God's given to us as our heritage. Of course you're not going to let them go through the palace and take what they want, but you're also not going to let them take over us as vassals either. King Ahab's desperation had led him down this path where he's willing to do something so preposterous, so absurd, 
the only thing that we as readers or even the elders of Israel know what to say is, are you drunk? (laughs) This is crazy. Now Ahab's not the only one. The next figure that we see a little bit of the inner workings of is the king, Ben-Hadad, the guy that had pulled together this whole coalition and the one who's making these threats on Ahab and Israel. Now this guy is quite literally drunk. We are told that he is so confident, that he is so arrogant in his position, that he leaves the battle, he leaves the siege lines, he goes back to his tents, or his booths as it says in the Bible, calls all his buddies with him, and he starts drinking a lot. In fact, we have this line that he has in verse 18. It says this. He said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. Guys, that makes no sense. The point of that is it's supposed to give you this feel of of somebody that's in their cups and they're just slurring their speech and their garbled reasoning. They don't know what's going on. And it's this reason, excuse me, this is the reason that when this small ragtag army of Israel comes out from Samaria, they're able to overrun this superior army with greater numbers, with greater training, because their leaders were in their tents getting drunk. If you wanted to summarize this narrative in just a very efficient, succinct way, you could say this. 1 Kings 20 is the story of two drunken kings trying to outdo one another with their foolish decisions. That would be a pretty good summary of what's going on here. But I don't want to end it with that. Because really, that is just the framework for the main thing that's happening in this passage. It's just the framework for another figure who's making seemingly drunk decisions. Who's left in this text that you can think of who's doing some sort of uh, drunk decision making? It's not the prophet, the nameless prophet. It's not the servants of the governors. We don't know much about them. Who is it that I'm thinking of? You got an idea? If you do, you're probably afraid to say it in church. Here's who I'm thinking. God. God takes some actions in this passage that seem so absurd and preposterous. In our human reasoning, it makes us want to say, have you been drinking? Now, don't storm out of the church right now, okay? This... uh, Hey, this might be the day I get fired. Here we go. No, bear with me, because listen to what I just said. Not that God is drunk, but that we, in our human reasoning, look at something he does here and wonder (laughs) if he's been drinking, because we don't understand it. Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the way that God treats King Ahab, in particular, the mercy he shows King Ahab. That seems drunk. We've already talked about who this guy is, King Ahab. The Bible tells us he is more wicked and evil than all the kings that have come before him. He has wholesale turned his back on the Lord and any covenant relationship with him. Why on earth 
would God, the holy, holy, holy God, intervene to deliver this man from the mess that he had made for himself? Why? And it's not even as if King Ahab asked for deliverance. Where in this text did you see him in his desperation falling on his knees and saying, Oh Lord, I'm sorry, please help me out, I promise I'll do better. Nowhere. He doesn't ask for God's help. He doesn't seek the Lord even in his desperation. It's God who unsolicitedly intervenes by sending his prophet and saying, Today, Ahab, I'm going to deliver you. And I'm going to give this big bad army into your hand so all that will know that I am the Lord. That's the thing that makes me want to say, have you been drinking? God has an answer, I think, for me, though, and for any who would pose this question to him from the text. His answer is this, no, I've not been drinking. I'm not out of my head. I'm not intoxicated. I am simply a God who delights in showing mercy to people who don't deserve it. That's it. That's who I am. And in my human way of thinking, I look at this action, this undeserved mercy, and I say, that is crazy. That is absurd. That is drunk. But the truth is, that's the character of God. In Exodus 34, when Moses is begging to see the Lord, the Lord says, I'll pass before you. You can glimpse my glory. And when he does that, he introduces himself to Moses and to the people by extension. And he says this, the first thing he says about himself, I am the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who our God is. So we come back once again to this idea, is he drunk? No. He's simply a God who delights in showing mercy to people who don't deserve it. We see that clearly in King Ahab's story. We also see it repeated time and time and time again throughout the Bible. You know what? Just a second ago I said this. I said, hey, if we really wanted to capture this narrative in just one succinct statement, here's what it would be. I'm going to now capture the Bible for you in one succinct statement. You know what my one summary statement of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is this. This is the story of how God shows mercy to people who don't deserve it. That's the Bible. The end. That really is it. And the reason I'm able to say that is because we get flashpoints of it in moments like this in the Old Testament, but then it keeps happening, it keeps happening, and it snowballs, and it accelerates until finally we get to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we see it in sharp relief. And we see the pinnacle, the climax, the apex of God showing grace and mercy to people who don't deserve it. It's seen most clearly when God the Son enters into a world that had rejected him. Or when God the Son offers his body up on a cross to die for people who had shouted crucify him. Or even in his teaching when he says, hey, listen, the healthy people don't need a physician, the sick people do. I've come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. To call Ahab's. That's what I'm about. 
And so if we see something of God's undeserved mercy show up in the life of King Ahab, it is only more amplified and writ even larger when we consider the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you were a believer in Jesus here this evening, it means that those same things are writ large in your life too. You're a testament of it. Have you ever considered what the angels in heaven must be thinking when they see God show mercy to people like you and me? I'll just use myself as an example, okay? They know me. And yet they also know that the Lord has shown mercy upon mercy to me, that he's forgiven me, that he's called me into a life of abundance with him. And they must be saying, really? Him? Are you sure? I mean, they, they've seen my sin and my brokenness. They've seen my pettiness and my jealousy and my selfishness. They've seen how before I knew Jesus, I was hostile against him. And even now that I do know Jesus, I continue to fail and turn back to old sins and idols. And it must be that they see all that and say, God, have you been drinking? Why him? The same shock that I experience as a reader when I read about God showing mercy to Ahab must be the same shock that the angels in heaven have when they see God's mercy towards a person like me. And yet God says, no, I haven't been drinking. I'm a God who delights in showing mercy to those who don't deserve it. And it bears witness about who I am to the whole universe. Because that's the thing. If the angels in heaven were to push past their shock and really look deeply into what this grace towards the undeserving means, they wouldn't, they wouldn't come away with the conclusion that God was intoxicated or out of his head. They would come away with the conclusion that it is a testament to his glory. When we see God loving the unlovable, forgiving the unforgivable, inviting the, the whole world to share his yoke and experience his rest. It's glorious. It's so glorious that when the angels in heaven or the whole universe see it, they erupt into praise. Because God is doing something that is so foreign to the ways of the world and the universe and to the human mind. It is spectacular to see his grace, not to people who are cleaned up, and deserving as if anyone ever could be. But to see his grace and mercy come to a person like me. To a person like Ahab. God's not drinking. He's simply a God who delights in showing mercy to those who don't deserve it. And it's glorious. I want to finish our time here though. By kind of following up or following the thread of that reasoning, now to this question, what will you do with that knowledge? You've heard now about the God who gives mercy to those who don't deserve it. You've read it in this scripture in the Bible. You've heard me talk about it. Now what are you going to do with it? Do you want it? Do you want his grace? 
Do you want his mercy that's held out to people that have no business receiving it? Do you want his forgiveness and hope? Because that's where we are, where he's extended it to people that don't deserve it. But now the question is, will you take it? There's a detail in this text that at first reading I kind of blew by. But then it just sort of nagged in my mind all the week long. And it has to do with this little interaction that Ahab has with the prophet. So remember the prophet comes to him and says, the Lord's given you the battle into your hand. Ahab has some follow-up questions. One of them is, how are we going to win this battle? And the prophet tells him, we're going to send all these untrained young servants into the battle first. But an earlier draft of this sermon, I was going to spend a lot of time talking about that. Because that seems like a pretty drunk battle plan, don't you think? Let's send the little servant boys into battle first. There's a lot to say about that, but another time perhaps. But then there's a follow-up question. Ahab then, after he hears who's going to go into battle, he then says, who shall begin the battle? This is verse 14. And the prophet answered him, you. That's singular, you. That's not y'all. It's you. He's saying, Ahab, God has delivered you today. He has given you this battle. But you have to step into it. You have to embrace it. You have to take that step into what God is doing. And I think the same thing happens in the gospel. Jesus Christ has given forgiveness through the cross to those who don't deserve it. He's extended grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it. And we say, awesome. What now? That's when he says, you, come follow me. You, singular. So that means not not your friends, not your family, not your church, not your community. You, come follow me. Embrace me as your Savior, Jesus says. Embrace me as your Lord. Be united to me by faith. And then all this undeserved grace and mercy that I hold out to the world is yours. Do you want it? If you do. Take it. There's nothing stopping you. Certainly not that you don't deserve it. Nobody does. The tragic thing about Ahab is that he never took it. I know you're probably thinking, Josh, what are you talking about? He won the battle. He fought. Syria was defeated. Yeah, the battle. But the battle was meant to point to a bigger spiritual reality. It was meant to show Ahab and the people that the Lord is the only God of Israel. And what we're going to find out in the weeks to come is that is something that Ahab never embraced from the heart. The undeserved mercy of God was consistently held out to this king. But he never took it. What will you do? I want to finish with a passage. This is where I had my bookmark that fell out. See how quick I can turn to it. Ooh, that was less than five seconds. I was pretty good at sword drills as a kid. First Timothy 1.15, it says this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, 
as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. Jesus isn't calling you when you're all cleaned up and showered and nice and on your best behavior. He's calling the chief of sinners. He's calling the King Ahabs. He's calling the people that have suppressed the ugliness and brokenness and sin in their life and saying, I want you to come follow me. If you're hearing him call tonight, today is the day of salvation. Don't hold back any longer. Let's pray. Lord, I I prepared this week to preach this. I've preached it twice now today, and yet I feel like I still don't fully understand it. I still don't fully see the extent of your grace to a sinner like me. And your love now to make me a beloved child of God, holy and blameless in your sight. Lord, that is so scandalous and crazy and dare I say it, drunk. But it is so amazing. Let us all who know you revel in this scandalous grace this evening. And if there are any here who don't know you as their Lord and Savior and aren't able to revel in that grace that you've given, I pray that you would prick their hearts to join me now in saying this prayer. O Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I have nothing in my own record or in my own strength or in my own morality to commend me to you. All I have is your mercy, and I claim that. Lord, forgive me. Make me yours. And give me the desire to follow Jesus with every ounce of my strength from today to the rest of my life. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for the word, Josh. Let's stand up. We'll